Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, Alexa, and hello Google. This country is now in a state of national emergency. For those of you who have never before experienced a state of emergency, it's much like the state of Arkansas, only scarier. During the duration of the national emergency, you are advised to seek shelter at all times when it starts raining, to keep your person and property secure from all threats, foreign and domestic, and to maintain proper situational awareness, primarily by keeping your audio devices tuned to Hello, welcome to the show. Riding on the city of New Orleans, Illinois Central, Monday morning rail. Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders, three conductors. Twenty-five sacks of mail All along the southbound Odyssey The train pulls out at Kankakee And rolls along past houses, farms and fields Passing trains that have no name And freight yards full of old black men And the graveyards of the rusted automobiles sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers write their father's magic carpets made of steel mothers with their babes asleep rocking to, to the gentle beat and the rhythm of the rails is all they feel good morning I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. Nighttime on the city of New Orleans. Changing cars in Memphis, Tennessee. Halfway home, we'll be there. 
Mississippi darkness rolling down to the sea. But all the towns and people seem to fade into a bad dream and to steal the rail. Still ain't heard the news. The conductor sings his songs again. The passengers will please refrain. This train got to disappear in railroad blues. Good night, America. How are you? Said, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train that called the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone five hundred miles when the day. From the city of New Orleans, the city itself, where Arlo Guthrie performed last night, coincidentally. I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome you to this edition of the show, uh, where probably for the first time in, in my memory, uh, the fantasy-laden world of carnival, which uh, is now underway here, seems more real than what's going on in the rest of the country. Um, just... Just to give you a sense of where we're at, one of the sources of money that supposedly will be uh, raided, sorry, um, depended upon by uh, <laughs> President Trump for uh, building a wall, will be coming from uh, military construction for housing. What's the state of uh, military housing right now? Reuters has just done a big story exposing military housing conditions, leading the U.S. Army's top leadership to vow to renegotiate its housing contracts with private real estate firms, test tens of thousands of homes for toxins, and hold its own commanders responsible for protecting Army base residents from danger. Secretary of the Army Mark Esper said the Reuters reports and a chorus of concerns for military families, they got together and rehearsed, had opened his eyes to the need for urgent overhauls of the Army's privatized housing system. Did you know the, the Army's privatized housing system, which accommodates more than 86,000 families? Support our troops, won't you? The secretary concluded that private real estate firms tasked with managing and maintaining the housing stock have been failing the families they serve, and the Army itself neglected its duties. That's the Army. It's frankly unconscionable, says the Secretary of the Army, that our soldiers and their families would be living in these types of conditions. But what types of conditions would those be? According to Reuters, rampant mold and pest infestations, childhood lead poisoning, service families, often powerless to challenge private landlords in business with their military employers have uh, feared retaliation if they spoke out. This is across the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine base housing communities. So it's, it's all forces. No discrimination. Our instinct is this is bigger even than what it's been reported, says the Army's chief of staff. We want to get to the bottom of it. Get to the bottom of it fast. 
That's spoken like a chief of staff, isn't it? Uh, the Army will conduct an extensive survey. Yeah, that, that will get to it fast. Do a survey. Of uh, family housing across the country to define the scope of potentially hazardous conditions. Reports in the past were provided by the private companies themselves, and they painted a false picture, according to the Army's chief of staff. Why would that be? Army leaders singled out mold infestations as the leading cause of health concerns. Having had a mold-triggered thing myself recently, thank you, air conditioning, um, that, 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 can, that can lay you low. But we don't need to spend it. That money can go to the border or someplace else. You know, We don't need to worry about that. And now, news of a land of 15,000 princes. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Senator Ron Wyden is calling out Apple and Google for making it easier for Saudi Arabian men to treat their spouses like possessions. Apple and Google have been accused of helping to enforce gender apartheid in Saudi Arabia by offering an app which allows men to track women and stop them from leaving the country. Both the Google Play and the iTunes store host Absher, a government web service which allows men to specify when and how women can cross Saudi borders and getting nearly real-time updates when the women travel anywhere. The app is developed and supported by the Saudi government. Both companies have policies against apps that facilitate threats and harassment. Absher may have some benign functions built in, like paying parking tickets. This is from Tech Dirt, by the way. But the overall point of the app is to allow Saudi men to dictate when and where their wives can travel, as well as be alerted to any movements suggesting their spouses are trying to escape the country. And the app also has an ability to provide employers with 24-hour surveillance of their employees. So it's just like working for Amazon. That would be our freedom-loving friends. Ladies and gentlemen, in uh, the land of 15,000 princes, a place I like to call Saudi Arabia. And now, let's go even more international, shall we? With the appropriate pause, it's news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. Well, tell me if you've heard this one before. The amount of debt incurred by the organizing committee of the Rio Olympics has risen sharply to over three times the last disclosed figure. They've tripled. Rio 2016 is now around $113 million in debts. That's um, compared to December 2016, when the debt stone stood at $32 million. The revelation represents another troubling development for the organizing committee. It's appealed to the Brazilian government for help in settling its debts. And uh, this is two years after Rio 2016 called on the IOC for assistance. The IOC refused. Hey, you bid for it. You pay for it. 
The majority of the overdue money is due to suppliers, including a company that helped construct some of the temporary venues used at the games. Venues, menus. The Brazilian Olympic Committees, among other creditors, owed $4 million by the organizing committee. Labor debts, ticket dues, and ongoing issues with the return of sporting facilities are other concerns still faced by Rio. The organizing committee currently has seven employees. Still hasn't dissolved the organizing committee two and a half years <laughs> since the games disorganized themselves. It's unable to be wound down because of numerous lawsuits from compensation are now pending. 258 civil lawsuits and 325 labor lawsuits. Tom? Those will be labor lawsuits. That's right. A new study concluded last month that the Olympics in Rio had positive economic impacts on both the host city and metropolitan area. We'll be awaiting a copy of that study. And the price for the opening and closing ceremony for the Tokyo Olympics in 2020 has risen about 40%. You see a trend here, a pattern? That's according to members of the organizing committee. Toshiro Muto, chief executive of the Games, told members on Friday the cost of the ceremonies would be capped at about $118 million. Tokyo's cost estimate when they were awarded the Games was $82 million. million. Billion? Million. It's got to be million. Despite the increase, Muto said the privately funded operating budget of about $5.5 billion would be unchanged. The organizing committee said Mansai Nomura, a renowned actor in traditional Japanese theater, no, would be the chief creative director for the opening and closing ceremonies. Tokyo is spending at least $20 billion to ready the city for the Olympics. Excluding the operating budget, the rest comes from national, city, and regional governments, i.e. taxpayers. And of course, NBC stands to make a large amount of money off of them. The Olympics. It's a movement. And its budget keeps rising. Every day. All right, enough of that. Now, with an even bigger orchestra, News of the Godly. Pope Francis has expelled Theodore McCarrick, former cardinal and archbishop of Washington, D.C. He's out of the priesthood. There was an expedited canonical process, ooh, that sounds painful, that found him guilty of sexually abusing minors and adult seminarians over decades. That's a while. That's, that's, a, that's a, a good, good, bit of, good bit of time. The Holy Father has recognized the definitive nature of this decision made in accord with the law, making it final, said the Vatican, to the sentence handed down. First time a cardinal or bishop in the U.S. has been defrocked uh, by the Catholic Church. First time any cardinal has been laicized for sexual abuse. Laicization strips a person of all priestly identity, according to the New York Times. Vatican has laicized hundreds of priests for sexual abuse of minors. Few of the church's leaders have faced severe discipline. The move to defrock McCarrick is almost revolutionary, says a professor of canon law at the Catholic University of America. 
Church leaders hope they can move forward from the scandal before this week when the Pope and the presidents of bishops' conferences from around the world are meeting at the Vatican to discuss the sexual abuse crisis. And get that McCarrick out of the way. Sweep that guy out the, out the front door, will you? But, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just the Catholic Church. You've heard on this broadcast in uh, times past reports about sexual abuse of minors by um, rabbis in highly orthodox areas of New York City, Brooklyn, uh, where the uh, political influence of uh, those groups in that particular county uh, weighed heavily on the district attorney uh, in the form of inducing him not to uh, file criminal charges, that thing. Now comes this about the Southern Baptist Convention from the Houston Chronicle in conjunction with the San Antonio Express News. See, now newspapers have to partner up to do a big story. More than 250 people who worked or volunteered in Southern Baptist churches have been charged with sex crimes. Not a recent problem. Since 1998, roughly 380 Southern Baptist church leaders and volunteers have faced allegations of sexual misconduct. That concludes those who were convicted, credibly accused, and successfully sued, and those who confessed to resign. More of them worked in Texas than in any other state. It's a big state. Come on. They left behind more than 700 victims, many of them shunned by their churches. Some were urged to forgive their abusers or, here's good advice from the Southern Baptist Convention, get abortions. 220 offenders have been convicted or took plea deals. Dozens of cases are pending. They were pastors, ministers, youth pastors, Sunday school teachers, deacons, and church volunteers. In 2007, sexual abuse victims of Southern Baptist pastors asked for a registry to be created containing the names of current and former leaders of the uh, convention who uh, had been accused of sex crimes, uh, convicted of sex crimes, or had been credibly accused. That didn't happen. The last time any such list was made public was by the Baptist General Convention of Texas. Texas contained the names of eight sex criminals in 2018. The uh, newspapers found complaints made against hundreds of pastors, church officials, and volunteers at Southern Baptist churches nationwide. Uh, The papers concentrated on individuals who had a documented connection to a church listed in a Southern Baptist directory published by a state or national association. Nearly 100 are still held in prisons, ranging from Sacramento County to Hillsborough County, Florida. Scores of others cut deals and served no time. More than 100 are registered sex offenders. Some still work in Southern Baptist churches today. At least 35 church pastors, employees, and volunteers who exhibited predatory behavior were still able to find jobs at churches during the past two decades. In some cases, church leaders apparently failed to alert law enforcement about complaints or to warn other congregations about alleged misconduct. Several past presidents and prominent leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention are among those criticized by victims for concealing or mishandling abuse complaints within their own churches or seminaries. Some registered sex offenders returned to the pulpit. Others remained there, including a Houston preacher who sexually assaulted a teenager and is now principal officer of a Houston nonprofit that works with, say it with me now, student organizations. Its name Touching the Future Today, Incorporated. 
Many of the victims were adolescents who were molested, sent explicit photos or texts, exposed to pornography, photographed nude, or repeatedly raped by youth pastors. Some victims as young as three were molested or raped inside pastors' studies or Sunday school classrooms. A few were adults. Southern Baptist churches share resources and materials, funding missionary trips and seminaries together, but most pastors are ordained locally after they've convinced a small group of church elders that they've been called to service. There is no central database that tracks ordinations. All of that makes these churches highly susceptible to predators, says an activist who wrote a book about being molested as a child by a pastor at her Southern Baptist church. The uh, then Southern Baptist principal, the president, sorry, according to the book, wrote at one point they were taking the issue seriously, but the local church autonomy presented serious limitations. That uh, person, Frank Page, just uh, last year resigned as president and CEO of the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee for a, quote, morally inappropriate relationship in the recent past, according to the executive committee. No, it's not just the Catholics, ladies and gentlemen. But that is News of the Godly. And there's a copyrighted feature in this broadcast. And uh, now, let's talk about our friend, the Adam. This this will this this ought to cheer you up. <laughs> That's how bad that was. News of the Adam. Um, our friend, the Adam, of course. You know him well. Kyushu Electric Power Company, they're in Japan, as if you didn't know, says it has decided to scrap its aging number two reactor at the Genkai nuclear plant in Sega Prefecture. The Sega video, yeah, they named the video game company after a prefecture. The util- or they named the prefecture after a video game company. The utility abandoned a plan to restart the unit in the face of the huge costs involved in enhancing the safety of the reactor which is already near the end of its 40-year operating life. This is from the Japan Times. That safety is so expensive, ladies and gentlemen. Really. The firm also took into account that it's unable to secure land to build a counterterrorism facility, which is required under Japan's new safety rules. Even if the plant is decommissioned, it doesn't mean the nuclear fuel or radioactive materials will disappear immediately, said the governor of Sega Prefecture. Yoshinori Yamaguchi. We hope you will be absolutely sure about securing safety, he told the company. Aside from the reactors at Fuk, decommissioning of 10 reactors in Japan has already been decided since the new rules, the new safety rules went into effect. This will be the 11th such reactor. After 10, it sort of follows. There have been a number of operational problems at the Genkai plant. In May last year, pumps installed to control the circulation of cooling water suffered malfunctions following a steam leak from a pipe just a week after it was reactivated, the number three plant. Maybe maybe it's time. Maybe, maybe you don't want to spend all the money on safety. Spain aims to close all, close all seven of its nuclear plants between 2025 and 2035, That's part of plans to generate all the country's electricity from renewable sources by 2050. That's impossible. This is from Reuters. The energy minister announced the move just as the government gears up to call an early national election. Overhauling Spain's energy system 
which generated 40% of its electricity from renewable sources last year, will require big investment. The government is going to present a draft plan to combat climate change, aiming to ban sales of gasoline, diesel, and hybrid cars starting in 2040. That's impossible. And to encourage the installation of at least 3,000 megawatts a year of renewable electricity capacity, such as wind and solar. That, my friends, is impossible. TEPCO ignored reports on fires, just fires, and other problems at its nuclear plants. Didn't bother to share the information in-house or outhouse, uh, or consider precautionary measures, according to the Japanese nuclear watchdog. It decided just a couple days ago it's going to investigate by TEPCO to tackle the problems reported by its three facilities. A TEPCO official said the company put off tackling the problems because the deadline for dealing with such matters, quote, was not clearly stated, unquote. You guys with these vague deadlines, you're asking for trouble. TEPCO safety regulations stipulate that blazes, glitches in air conditioning, and other problems at nuclear plants must be dealt with by the main office. As such, the utility is obliged to find the root of the problem and take precautionary measures to ensure safety at the plant in question and any other facilities. Inspectors found uh, at the Fook plant that the division of company headquarters in charge of dealing with safety issues and sharing the information neglected reports of four, four problems that had occurred at that Fook plant, including fires that broke out at waste disposal buildings. Well, that's how you dis- deal with the waste problems. Set it on fire and don't report it. And glitches in the air conditioning system at the number two reactor. Officials also determined there had been numerous instances of a failure to act over the past three years. And they're not talking about William Shatner. The latest inspection report from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in this country came up with one deficiency at Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station related to an incorrectly installed regulator valve that had triggered just an automatic shutdown of the reactor. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to look at. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has terminated the construction authorization for the mixed oxide fuel facility. Mixed oxide, MOX for short, was intended to process our old friend, our old friend plutonium to make fuel, mixed oxide fuel, to run commercial nuclear power plants that are closing down. Construction on the MOX facility started... Twelve years ago at Savannah River in South Carolina, construction stopped October of last year after the Department of Energy terminated the contract. Shortly after the U.S. Court of Appeals allowed the DOE to halt construction. No radioactive materials brought onto the site. The uh, company running the place hasn't even got a license to possess and use special nuclear material, so it won't have to be, you know, decommissioned. Site is immediately released for unrestricted use without any environmental assessment necessary. Senator Lindsey Graham, running out of things to speak up about, called the termination of the facility a colossal mistake. Why? He said the facility was the only viable method of safely disposing of excess plutonium. Ideas welcome. Send them to Lindsey. The plant was meant to meet the requirements of a 2000 agreement with Russia to dispose of 34 metric tons of weapons-grade plutonium. 
It's clean. It's cheap. It's safe. It's 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 too safe to dispose of. Our friend, the atom.
This is Le Show, and uh, now a little news of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Impacts from climate change are not always easy to see, especially for those who um, might not want to see them. I'm not, I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm not pointing any part of my body at this moment in time. But um, there's some that are becoming uh, apparent to uh, owners of small businesses, local businesses and coastal communities across the United States. The evidence is right outside their doors or their parking lots. According to a new study in the journal Science Advances, the evidence is revealed as a financial price for business. Finally, now we're putting dollars on the cost of climate change. This is when people start paying attention, don't you think? Stanford graduate student Miyuki Hino and her colleagues found that downtown Annapolis, Maryland's state capital suffered a loss of 3,000 visits two years ago due to high tide flooding a loss of somewhere between 86,000 and 172,000 in revenue. They rely on visitors, say the researchers. High tide flooding is sometimes called nuisance or sunny day flooding. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Sunny day flooding? Let's have a picnic, a a wet picnic. It happens when ocean waters rise above the levels that coastal infrastructure was designed for. Water sweeps in, filling streets and parking lots, preventing normal traffic. Once relatively rare, high tide flooding days have increased about 60% from 20 years ago, according to NOAA. In 27 locations across the U.S., the number of high tide flooding days went from an average of 2.1 per year in the 50s to 11.8 during the first decade of this, this uh, century thing. By two, 2035, about 170 coastal communities are projected to experience 26 high flood high tutting days a year. High, fly, high tide flooding is becoming more frequent, is the uh, takeaway from that. Annapolis happens to be home of the U.S. Naval Academy. It tops the list of cities experiencing increases in high tide flooding. So if you're planning to go to Annapolis, take your big boots. Now um, we have this uh, state of emergency that we're in, ladies and gentlemen. I think you've heard about it. Like many people, my ears perked up when I heard (laughs) the president of the United States um, say that um, he didn't really need to do this. He was just uh, doing this because this way he could build his wall faster. He didn't really need to declare an emergency, which sort of vitiates the concept of emergency just a little bit. Um, But to me, the most notable uh, of his uh, basically ad lib, quite long statement on the subject of the emergency and many other things, given the nature of ad libbing, um, was this uh, as he looked to the future. The order is signed, and uh, I'll sign the final papers as soon as I get into the Oval Office, and we will have a national emergency. And we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. Just like the ban, they sued us in the Ninth Circuit, and we lost, and then we lost in the appellate division, and then we went to the Supreme Court, and we won. The, they, the band didn't show up, unfortunately. I don't know what happened there. Um, so you had, you had a situation 
where, according to all reports, the the Congressional Conference Committee, which is the traditional way that these issues get solved in Washington, a committee from members of both houses and both parties, um, closet themselves, careful, and um, hammer out a compromise, which they did. Um, One of the things that they cited as their ability to do that was keeping any administration officials at bay, most particularly the person who was dispatched from the White House to um, try to influence the conference committee, uh, Jared Kushner, was was kept away. And that, some of the legislators involved told uh, reporters, was a contributor to their ability to get an agreement that uh, the president has reluctantly signed. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Republican head of the Senate, um, majority leader of the Senate, had reportedly warned the president not to uh, plunge the country into another shutdown, which was, of course, the alternative policy available at the moment. And while McConnell was reportedly against the declaration of a national emergency privately, um, like almost every Republican so far, he has uh, fallen into line. So we, we kind of know how we got to where we are, or maybe we need to know more. This week, it's time to put the urgency in emergency, unless it's time to put the emerge in emergency. And for the businessman turned chief executive, the competition among his teams to please him only grows more dog beat dog. Jared. Yes, sir. Have I told you lately how beautiful your daughter is? I know how beautiful she is. If she wasn't my daughter, I'd be telling you. I can tell you that, believe me. So, any luck getting to the uh, Congress negotiators? They've shut me out, sir. One of them told me I could go fix the Middle East. Okay. Just explain to me this. Mm -hmm. Just because they're so-called elected by their little spithole districts, Mm -hmm. that makes it okay for them to brush off the president's hand-picked son-in-law? I don't understand it either, sir. They just just kept repeating something about uh, Article 1 of the Constitution. Ah, I've read about it. It has uh, thou don't steal in it, right? Bottom line, my team has no visibility into their negotiations. You can't button-hold them when they come out for a pee break? Come on, Jared. I've done some of my greatest deals across the urinal from some schmuck. You need a pass to get into the john. Okay. I see where this is going. The Congress people come out with a deal, which pressures me to sign the deal. Sean and Laura and Ann Coulter, whom I barely know, attack the deal. Rush says I'm through if I sign the deal. Nancy's going to call me a loser if I go along with the deal. And you and your team are the only thing standing between me and all that. So, you know what your task is this week? Yes, sir. I'm already on it. Really? Yeah. We're going to go fix the Middle East. By the time I got back to the house, he'd left me a voicemail message. It said, next time I let my daughter get married, it's going to be to an Italian. Mitch. Always glad to be back in this uh, historic room, sir. You can cut the crap. I didn't design it. You think I'd put up molding like that? (laughs) No, sir. I I tell everybody up on the hill that uh, you've got a very keen eye for molding. 
Like it's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, look, I hate this deal. I haven't read it, but I know I hate it. It's like it says loser in big red letters on the front page. I didn't read that on the front page. I didn't read it per se so, but it smells like a loser. I can tell you that. Well, it's the best our process could deliver in the short time frame we allotted ourselves. In my experience, sir, rapidly approaching deadlines tend to offer pretty much the best incentive for getting to yes. Yeah. Well, here's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You guys are going to get to yes, then I'm going to get to no, then you're going to convince me that I have to get to yes, then I'm going to get to sign an emergency, then you're going to get to no to that thing. Then I'm going to get to screw you, Mitch. Uh, sir, there's there's nothing personal about any of this. It's, it's the way business is done here. That's swamp business, Mitch. In my business, it's as personal as a kneecapping. And that's a good thing. So listen, Mitch. Your task for this week is to get your Senate guys, your... your uh, Senators? Yeah, yeah, from the caucus thing. Mm -hmm. To get those guys not to veto my emergency. It's too important. Well, personally, sir, I think an emergency declaration would be a mistake. But uh, as I'm sure you know, only you can veto something. Mitch, here's your freaking noggin. Why would I do that? I'm too smart to veto myself. Now, the, the Senate could pass a non-binding resolution critical of your declaration, but I would never let something like that get to the floor. Yeah. But would it get to the table? All right. Sometimes my guys tell me you're putting something on the table or you're taking something off the table or... We wouldn't have to table that resolution, sir. I could uh, just use my powers as majority leader to keep it bottled up. Okay, Mitch, then do that. You know, with the floor and the table and the binding and the bottle. You guys could get a lot more done if you just use regular English, believe me. You know, it's strange, uh... Seems like the harder it gets to please him, uh, the harder I want to try. Mick, best acting chief of staff ever. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Of the three hats I'm wearing in your administration, uh, I think this one's my favorite. Okay. So maybe you can tell me something, Mr. Three Friggin' Hats. <laughs> I'm about to go out and announce I'm signing the emergency. Mm -hmm. I just looked at the paper mm -hmm. where it says, Nature of Emergency. Yes, sir. It's blank. I see where this is going. I sign it. The Democrats say it's blank. Then I say you're socialists. Then... Sir, sir, we've had weeks of meetings on this. Every yeah. time we do, the exact description of the nature of the emergency changes. The facts on the ground keep changing. There's always a caravan. Everybody knows that. Lots of people say it. Right. But given the lack of a video of a caravan in Mexico at this particular moment, uh, Bill Shine thinks the fake news will go with... the. Uh, Video of you and the family landing in Mar-a-Lago with the Chiron. Here's the caravan, and, and we just didn't think the women with the, the women with the duct tape over their mouths? I know I've seen video of that. I think you've even bought one. Look, Mick, your task this week is to get something on that form that I signed when I come back in from the speech. All right, sir. Well, um, what are you going to say in your speech? Ah, Steve wrote some crap, but I'm just going to wing it. That's the best. It's almost like I'm Rush Limbaugh doing three hours without taking calls, except he takes commercial breaks and I Great, don't... great. We'll, we'll monitor your speech. I'm, I'm sure you'll say something we can use. Yeah. Yeah, me too. New team, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make a national emergency great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. 
the Presidentis. This week, it's wall to wall, balls to the wall. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Speaking of Southern Baptists, a leading Southern Baptist figure has apologized for supporting a religious leader who was accused of helping conceal sexual abuses at his former church and for making a joke that he said downplayed the severity of the allegations. In an interview with the Houston Chronicle, Al Mohler said for the first time publicly he regrets his embrace of C.J. Mahaney, the former leader of Sovereign Grace Ministries, now known as Sovereign Grace Churches, for your convenience. Mahaney and his former organization were sued in 2013 by 11 people alleging that their abuses were concealed by leaders, at least one of whom was later convicted. Mahaney later, long denied the allegations and denounced the allegate. No, sorry. Uh, despite the high-profile and well-publicized scandal, Moeller and others continued to welcome Mahaney at religious conferences, calling him a friend with personal integrity. I believe, in retrospect, I erred in being part of a statement of supportive of Mahaney and rather dismissive of the charges, Moeller said. And I regret that action, which I think was taken without due regard to the claims made by the victims and survivors at the time, and frankly, without an adequate knowledge of, on my part, for which I am responsible. Moeller, the longtime president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky. A South Carolina town has honored an African-American World War II veteran more than 70 years after he was beaten and blinded by local police. Officials and community leaders in Batesburg, Leesville, name is probably bigger than the town, unveiled a historical marker of the attack on Sergeant Isaac Woodard, Jr. He'd just gotten out of the Army in February 46 and was on his way home when he got into a dispute with the bus driver after asking to get off to use the bathroom. The driver complained to the police including Linwood Schull, the town's police chief. They brutally beat Woodard, who was still in his army uniform, and threw him in jail. He was convicted of drunk and disorderly conduct and fined. The officers were later charged with violating Woodard's civil rights and acquitted. Quote, I'm sorry that this happened, and I apologize for this happening, said the mayor, Lancer Schull. No relation. They work, he and other city officials worked to vacate Woodard's conviction last year. Forgiveness does not condone it. It does not forget the act. But for those of us, we can now vow to make sure this act never happens again, he says. Woodard, as it happens, died in 1992. But his relatives came from New York for the ceremony. The head of the European Parliament apologized after touching off a dispute by referring to parts of Croatia and Slovenia as Italian <laughs> on a day commemorating the slaughter of thousands of his countrymen following World War II. Speaking in honor of those Italians who died and hundreds of thousands more who fled from Adriatic Sea border regions to escape Yugoslav partisans during massacres, Antonio Tajani referred to Italian Istria and Italian Dalmatia. The region subsequently became part of Yugoslavia and then Croatia and Serbia. He apologized that did to Johnny, saying his reference to the regions was in no way a territorial claim, but instead to honor those who were exiled and their descendants, many of whom were present at the ceremony. I'm sorry if the meaning of my words has been misinterpreted, he said. It was not my intention to offend anyone. I just wanted to send a message of peace between the peoples so that what happened then will never be repeated. What do you think the odds are of that? Michelle Rodriguez has apologized for her choice of words in defending Liam Neeson following his comments published in a British newspaper, that he wanted to kill a, quote, black bastard, unquote, to avenge a friend who had been raped. Rodriguez, who's an actress, 
said in an event last week that her co-star in a, a film coming out now, maybe this is why this is all happening, uh, Neeson could not be racist because of his on-screen kiss with black co-star Viola Davis. On Saturday, she apologized for the remarks. To my friends and colleagues and my fans and community, I want to deeply apologize for my recent choice of words and poor use of example. In a pressure-filled situation, I defended a friend in the wrong way, she said in an Instagram post. I now realize how insensitive it was, and I had no intention of invoking such a terrible, horrible comparison. I have learned from this and will grow from it. One love, Emrod. Neeson, yes, he is promoting that film, said it in an interview decades ago when a close friend confided to him that he, she had been raped and it had been a black man who had victimized her. He took to the street seeking vengeance. Sounds like he's pitching it. Yes. I'm ashamed to say that, and I did for maybe a week, hoping some, quote, black bastard, unquote, would come out of a pub and have a go at me about something, you know, so that I could kill him, Neeson said. Neeson himself apologized and said that his comments were taken out of context. I'm imagining the context where those sound good. Let's see. Rodriguez started, co-stars in the thriller. This is beginning to sound more and more like uh, publicly supported him. It's all F. Bull. Liam Neeson is not a racist, Rodriguez said, swearing a blue streak. She uh, told Vanity Fair, dude, have you watched, and she mentions the name of the film they're all in, his tongue was so far down Viola, Viola Davis's throat, you can't call him a racist ever. Racists don't make out with the race that they hate, and especially in the way that he does with his tongue, so deep down her throat. I don't care how good of an actor you are. That defense was highly criticized. Some people, including Shonda Rhimes, pointing to the abuse and sexual violence carried out by white slave owners against black enslaved women. Good point. Dateline Spokane, Washington, the president of Gonzaga Prep, has promised a full audit of the school's yearbook collection following the revelation of a racist photo from 1968. The photo was featured in... The local newspaper showed a group of students wearing what appeared to be Ku Klux Klan robes. It also featured a caption that the president of the school described as racist. On behalf of the school, he said, I apologize for the harm that this photo has caused and the racist attitudes that it has implicitly condoned from 1968 to the present. The purpose of our institution is to promote the sacred life and dignity of every individual. I can only look back on this aspect of our past with sadness and regret. I'm grateful for this opportunity to address our history and to learn from our past mistakes. In all of this, it just strikes me as curious that uh, one word doesn't really get into the public discourse regarding the Klan. The word is terrorism. Deadline Tokyo, a gaff-prone Japanese minister I believe that's a minister in the government, apologized for comments he made expressing his disappointment over swimming star Rikako Iki's leukemia diagnosis, saying they were insensitive to the gold medal hopeful at the 2020 Olympics. He retracted his comments, Yoshitaka Sakurada did, the comments he made the previous day. She's a, after she revealed her illness, he said, she's a potential gold medalist, an athlete of whom we have great expectations. I'm really disappointed. I lack consideration, Sakurado said later. I apologize and withdraw the remarks. He's no stranger to controversy, doubling as the government's 
cybersecurity chief. He admitted last November he doesn't use a computer. A Catholic priest in Indianapolis has been suspended from ministry following a report of sexual abuse involving a minor, Father David Marcotte. The abuse took place three years ago. Police are investigating. I apologize to all victims, their families, and loved ones who have suffered any form of abuse or misconduct by clergy, said the Archbishop of Indianapolis. Hey, did you know there are such things as fitness influencers? Well, Brittany Dawn sure did. She is one. But she's, you know, not too experienced, it appears. She says she'll no longer ask customers to sign a non-disclosure agreement before they could receive a refund, but didn't commit to giving all their money back. In an Instagram story, Brittany Dawn, whose real last name is Davis, said she would change her refund policy based on the advice of strong-minded business advisors. Dozens of her followers said they purchased nutrition guides and fitness coaching sessions from her, but didn't get the plans they were promised. After years of mounting complaints and blocking irate followers, Davis, who has around 560,000 followers on Instagram, said she would issue refunds, but told customers they would have to sign an NDA first. She told Good Morning America she felt to fulfill purchases because she was out of her depth. I jumped into an industry that had no instruction manual. I'm basically going through uncharted territory and doing the best I can. I'm using this as a tool to learn. She uh, also issued an apology video on YouTube where she said she was new to the business, even though customers have been complaining about unfilled orders for years. I'm seeing a new job opening. Influencer coach. Come on. Naomi Rao, President's nominee for Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's now vacant seat on the appeals court in Washington, apologized Monday for commentary she wrote decades ago as a Yale student, suggesting women should change their behavior to avoid date rape. Sexual assault in all forms is abhorrent. Responsibility for the rape is with the rapist. I believe that as a college student and continue to believe that today. I'm sorry for anything in my college writings to the contrary, she said in a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Australian medical doctor Dr. Paul Bauert claimed in an interview with Sky News that asylum seekers on uh, two islands near Australia are worse off than Jewish victims of the Holocaust because at least the latter knew what was going to happen to them. He quickly apologized later. Representative Ilhan Omar, who's been battling charges of anti-Semitism for weeks, apologized on Monday for insinuating that American support for Israel is fueled by money from AIPAC, the uh, pro-Israel lobbying group. And department store giant Bloomingdale's apologized after a customer flagged a a T-shirt for sale in one of its stores with the legend, Fake news! Thank you for bringing this to our attention. We apologize for any offense we may have caused, said Bloomies. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
weather is warm. And as soon as I finish talking, I'm getting out in the street. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this edition of the show. The program returns next week, same time on your radio station, whenever you want it, on your audio device of choice. And it'll be like that until the emergency is over. And it'll be just like the emergency being over if you'd agree to join me at the end. Would you? Alrighty. Thank you very much. Uh huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email email address for this program: your chance to get Cars I Talk T-shirts. What a what a what a deal! And uh, the playlist of the music heard on this thing all available in one place: HarryShearer.com. And I'm at another place too. I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City. Get out in the street.